so that we could go to an immaterial heaven, right? Later on, Constantine had the vision over the Milvan Bridge where he saw the vision of the cross and he saw written in Latin over it, in this sign, conquer. So that's why they painted the cross on the shields. And so Christ died for our sins so that we could subjugate the infidels. And throughout Christian theological tradition, the gospel, the death of the Messiah for our sins, gets plugged in to whatever end people are seeking. And so uh, the kind of main and plane of, of my life and ministry is to set the gospel within a first century Jewish redemptive narrative. Christ died for our sins so that we can attain the resurrection of the dead and immortality and live forever. And that's associated with what Jews expected about the coming of the day of God, the coming of the Messiah, the resurrection, uh, the judgment, and the messianic kingdom. Um, So there's a few things, uh, there's a lot of things that are used throughout Christian theological history to flip the narrative or change the narrative. Uh, But particularly, the kingdom of God is the phrase that is used to change the narrative the most. And so, for example, Origen, in the early 200s, who was in charge of the catechetical school in Alexandria, he loved the phrase, the kingdom of God, because to him it meant what Greeks thought of as the immaterial world. And so the kingdom of God was the goal of history, to die and go to the immaterial world. And uh, throughout Catholic tradition, whether it was Constantine or Justinian or Charlemagne or Innocent III, the kingdom of God was the favorite phrase because conquering the infidels was the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. Um, And throughout Christian history, that phrase gets utilized to whatever people want to accomplish in life, that is the kingdom. And so the question is, what was the kingdom to a first century Jew? And it fits very well within the overall redemptive narrative that the kingdom of God is associated with the day of the Lord, the resurrection, the age to come. And uh, for example, if you open up to Luke 14... Luke 14, the vast majority of references to the kingdom of God in the New Testament, there's about 125 references in the Gospels to the kingdom, specifically uh, as God's kingdom, not like the kingdom of Herod or whatever. So you have about 125 instances. There's about five that are questionable. The other 120 fit very well within a first century Jewish view of Redemptive history, past, present, future. Um, There's five that are questionable and one that particularly stands out above the rest. And that's Matthew 12, 28, which we'll look at. But if you open to Luke 14, it kind of is exemplary of how the kingdom is talked about. Uh, Verse 12, he said to the man who had invited him to uh, to the dinner... When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. 
When one of those reclining at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread or feast in the kingdom of God. So this is how they were thinking that when they would throw a feast, it was in light of the expectation of the messianic feast, the messianic banquet, because the same as the day of the Lord initiates the judgment seat of God and cleanses the heavens and the earth of wickedness, the resurrection of the dead initiates new bodies and eternal life. The messianic banquet or coronation ceremony in Jerusalem initiates the age to come in the messianic kingdom on a new earth. And so the coronation banquet, you know, of the kings of Israel in the past got projected into the future associated with the day of the Lord that the age to come would be initiated with a great coronation banquet and feast in Jerusalem. If there's no coronation banquet, there's no messianic kingdom. That's just, that would be like normal to a first century Jew. There's no resurrection of the dead unless you have a body that doesn't die. That, that's just how it is. <clears throat> so, when they're having this banquet, Jesus says, when you throw a banquet, in light of that great banquet to come, invite the poor, the lame, invite people and throw a banquet in such a way that it has eternal repercussions. Don't invite the rich and powerful because you'll get repaid in this life, but you won't get repaid at the resurrection of the just in the age to come, right? And so uh, he, this guy at the, at the, uh, at the uh, meal together yells out, blessed be those who feast in the messianic banquet. Like, Amen! <laughs> you know, he's excited. And Jesus responds, as he often does, throwing a wet blanket on the party. <laughs> and he says, A man once gave a great banquet, and he invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything's ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I, I bought a field, I have to go out and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I bought a yoke of oxen. I have to go examine them. Please excuse me. Another said, I have married a wife and therefore I can't come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to the servant, go out quickly into the streets, lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you have commanded has been done. There's still room. The master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in for that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So again, this kind of exemplifies that the discussion is not about what the banquet is, what the resurrection of the just is, what the kingdom of God is. The question is, who is responding rightly and wholeheartedly in truth to what everybody knows about history, the future, and, and the scriptures, right? So it's a cutting through hypocrisy and excuses and pretense. And uh, anyway, so uh, what was my point in that? My point in that 
My point in that is that the vast majority of references to the kingdom of God fall in line with the, these expectations as you read through. But there are a few sayings, particularly the kingdom of God's at hand, the kingdom of God's come upon you, the kingdom of God's within you, right? Matthew 3, Matthew 12, Luke 17, a couple others that are iffy, particularly one parable. The vast, all the parables are distinguishing between the righteous and the wicked to call out hypocrisy, like all of them, except like a couple, and that's the leaven and the, and the mustard seed. And so the leaven and the mustard seed, along with these three sayings, the kingdoms at hand come upon you and within you, are used as justification throughout church history to say, see, Jesus and the apostles radically redefined everything. And instead of being revivalists or renewalists, Jesus and the apostles were revolutionaries, and they were changing the definitions. Um, and I would say that that just doesn't really bear weight. Number one, you should take seriously the 120 sayings instead of the five that are questionable. But the five that are questionable make a whole lot more sense within a standard Jewish apocalyptic narrative of the day. And so we're going to look at Matthew 12 as one of those. Matthew 12 has been used throughout church history, but particularly in the last hundred years of New Testament studies, Matthew 12, 28 is the primary justification for saying that Jesus and the apostles changed the Jewish expectations about the future and saying that those expectations are being fulfilled and realized now through Jesus and the church. Um, so this is, uh, I just put together a little PowerPoint on uh, Matthew 12. Uh, I, I got a paper published, if anybody's interested, if you're a theological dork, you can come grab it, on Matthew 12, 28. That's going to come out in the next year in Bibliotheca Sacra. And my goal is to see uh, the translation of that particular verse in the future tense. Uh, because if you read in your Bibles, it's always in the past tense. And you may say, well, you can't just change tenses. But actually you can. Because not all languages, verbs, uh, and not all languages, verbs communicate time. In, in most Indo-European languages, verbs communicate time, past, present, and future. But in a lot of languages, verbs communicate aspect meaning point of view, which is actually what verbs should do. Verbs don't need to communicate time. There's no reason for a verb to communicate when something happened because you figure that out from the context. And so everybody knows ancient Hebrew, verbs don't communicate time, right? So if you'll read like in the Psalms, different translations, a lot of times the verbs will be past tense. Other translations will have them in the future tense. Like what's going on? Because Hebrew verbs don't communicate time. They, compute, they communicate the point of view. And since the Renaissance, Greek verbs have been assumed, ancient Greek verbs have been assumed to be like Indo-European, modern Indo-European uh, verbs communicating past, present, and the future. And in the last 30 years, one of the major kind of changes in Greek linguistics is a realization that ancient Greek did not, the verbs were aspectual, not tense-based. And so ancient Greek verbs, and that's become universal. All modern Greek linguists recognize, all, 
So this is not a minority position. By 2005, it was universally recognized, both in Christian circles and in secular circles, that ancient Greek verbs do not communicate time. They communicate point of view. So you translate those verbs into English in which verbs do communicate time. You translate it based on context. And so what is the context for the verb in Matthew 12? So um, we're going to work through some of that context. Because if I can show you that Matthew 12, 28 is not a redefinition of the kingdom of God, but actually an affirmation of how Jews viewed it, then the other four or five instances, it's the same way. And the other 120 instances, it's obvious. And so... uh, my goal is to kind of shake Matthew twelve twenty eight um, in your minds uh, this evening in order to accomplish the larger point is that the Messiah died for our sins so that we can inherit the hope of Israel, the resurrection of the dead, the age to come. Does that make sense? Okay. So just to start out with, if you want to flip forward, uh, I choose the, the Matthew's version of the story. Uh, about Jesus being accused of being demonized over Luke's version and Mark's version uh, because the Luke's version is truncated. It lacks the blasphemy of the Spirit saying. Uh, and Matthew's version clarifies uh, kind of the conclusion about every careless word, which is the accusation of Jesus being demonized, being brought to account on the Day of Judgment. Luke's version also lacks the larger context of Jesus' conflict with the religious leaders, which is what's happening. Why he's being accused of being demonized is his conflict with the religious leaders. Uh, Mark's account references the conflict with the religious leaders, but lacks the specific healing itself. So the healing of the demonized guy isn't in Mark's account. Uh, It it lacks the actual saying about the kingdom of God. If I drove out that demon by the finger of God or the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God comes upon you. Uh, And then third, it lacks the explanation concerning the future judgment. So Matthew's account of the encounter of being accused of being demonized is the fullest and most explanatory of the three uh, Gospels. Next slide. So... Jesus' response to uh, being accused of being demonized unfolds in three ways. Jesus' response is that your accusation about me being demonized, it's irrational, which is verses 25 through 29. It's immoral, verses 30 through 32. And then there's a sub-point like kind of point that it's, your accusation is immoral because you're immoral, verses uh, 33 through 35. And thus, because of your false accusation, you're going to be judged eternally for this false accusation, verses 36 to 37. So let's go ahead and read it. You can pull out your Bibles if you want, or I have it up here. And we'll just kind of, with that in mind, we'll just kind of read through the whole thing, and then we'll discuss through it a little bit. So a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus. He healed him, so the Uh, The man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? Now, in Jewish literature, specifically the Psalms of Solomon, chapter 17, that phrase is associated with traditional messianic expectation. 
that the son of David, the final son of David, is the messianic figure who executes the day of judgment, raises the dead, makes the new heavens and new earth, glorifies Jerusalem, restores the 12 tribes, etc. So when they see a guy that heals another guy, well, could this be the guy who's going to drive Satan and all the demons off the earth completely? It could. It could. That's right. And so that's what's in their minds. But the Pharisees, they don't want that guy to be an outsider from northern Israel, from Galilee, with a bumpkin accent, not trained by their group, right? Doesn't mean that the Pharisees believe the wrong things. Some of the Pharisees did believe that Jesus was the guy. Some didn't. And they had, you know, some whatever. So... So the Pharisees respond and say, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he says to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges, presumably at the day of judgment. Okay, next slide. If it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God, and I would say, we should translate in the future tense, as a negative thing. The kingdom of God will certainly come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Indeed, then indeed he may plunder his house, a reference to the day of the Lord and the great exorcism of the earth. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come, which gives you the clue That the judgment and the forgiveness is talking about the day of judgment, the day of the Lord, which creates the two ages. Right? So, next verse. Either make a tree good and its fruit is good, or make the tree bad and its fruit is bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word. The careless word is the false accusation that he's demonized and drove out this demon by Beelzebub. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned at the day of judgment. Right? So, next slide. This is the basic flow of the argument. He heals the guy. They say, no, he's not the Messiah. He did it by the power of Satan. And Jesus says, well, that is irrational. Kingdoms against themselves won't stand. It's immoral because you blaspheme the Holy Spirit. You won't be forgiven at the day of judgment. Because you're immoral, like a bad tree that produces bad fruit. And because of this false accusation, you will be condemned at the day of judgment. That's the flow of it, right? So now, what's not being talked about, this is the basic observation. What's not being talked about is the the hope of Israel in the future is being spiritually fulfilled and realized now and redefined. 
and your expectation of what the son of David is and what the kingdom of God is is totally uh, misunderstanding and I'm secretly introducing these new ideas. That is not what is being talked about. Right? Okay. <laughs> but this, this is the strange part is you get one verse in the middle of this whole interaction that is used as the primary justification for a radical redefinition of all the terms of Jewish expectation at the time. Right? So, next slide. So here's Craig Blomberg. Craig Blomberg is a very well-known New Testament scholar, teaches at Denver Seminary. He says, Jesus himself claims that he exercises by the power of the Holy Spirit who descended on him at baptism, marking the inauguration of God's reign, which is weird, like God didn't reign before Jesus? I don't understand. <clears throat> and who permanently empowers all disciples for ministry in the Messianic age. Verse 28 is arguably the single most important teaching of Jesus on realized eschatology, the present aspect of the kingdom. So the day of the Lord, the age to come, the resurrection of the dead, the messianic kingdom, the kingdom of God is being spiritually realized or fulfilled now through Jesus' ministry of healing the sick and driving out demons. And verse 28 is the most, the single most important teaching on it. But that's not what that whole passage is about. Does that make, you see, something is off here. <clears throat> Next slide, so... This is George Ladd. George Ladd is the great systematizer of this whole idea that was brought over from Europe in the 70s and 80s. And, uh, and so if you go to any evangelical seminary, you kind of start with George Ladd and you end with George Ladd. He's kind of become dogmatic. Um, but he didn't really say anything new. He just kind of brought over everything that was being talked about in Europe for the previous 30, 40 years into American evangelicalism. Anyway, so he was uh, a big fan of... C.H. Dodd, who taught at Oxford, and he was kind of the father of what's called realized eschatology, which is it's the same thing that's being been said throughout since Constantine, that the Hebrew scriptures are spiritually fulfilled in fallen Gentile kingdoms in this age. Anyway, so he says C.H. Dodd is right in affirming that the most characteristic and distinctive of the gospel sayings are those which speak of a present coming of the kingdom. Throughout the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus' mission is repeatedly understood as the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. The sayings about the kingdom of God as a present reality must be interpreted against this background. Right? So the Hebrew scriptures and the promises and hopes of Israel are being fulfilled in this age, before the day of judgment, before the resurrection, etc. The strongest statement... The strongest statement is Matthew twelve twenty eight. But if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So you get this one verse that's plucked completely out of context. And everybody recognizes that the resurrection of the dead hasn't happened. I mean, most people do. I mean, you still get a lot of theologians that write whole, like, big, thick volumes saying the resurrection's already happened in part. And in the future, the day of the Lord's already happened in part. And in the future, the judgment's already happened in part. But it doesn't; it just doesn't line up with what Jews believe, right? The resurrection has not happened. It doesn't mean that we don't believe that God's not creative and generating life and healing people. 
in this age before the resurrection, but the resurrection hasn't happened. Right? The day of the Lord has not come. It doesn't mean that God doesn't reveal himself to people. And it doesn't mean that God's not active in the world. But the great theophany, the great appearance of God hasn't happened. The judgment of the living and the dead, the judgment seat of God hasn't happened. It doesn't mean that God's not active and he, and he does temporal judgments on wickedness and temporal blessings on people. It doesn't mean that he doesn't bless and judge people in this age, but the judgment of the living and the dead hasn't happened. The kingdom of God hasn't been initiated. The coronation banquet hasn't happened. It doesn't mean that God isn't ruling over the heavens and the earth. It doesn't mean that he isn't uh, uh, active in expressing his sovereignty over everything, but the messianic banquet hasn't happened, and the restoration of the kingdom of Israel hasn't happened. Because it's not in accord with how Jews believed, right? So this whole weird thing that's developed over the last hundred years in the academy of this kind of spectrum of already not yet about the kingdom of God, which doesn't apply to any of the other Jewish eschatology things, the resurrection, the judgment, Gehenna. Gehenna hasn't happened, right? <laughs> it's never applied to Gehenna. Everything else is but not Gehenna. So, but the strange spectrum of already not yet, it misses the whole point. It's like, are elephants blue or yellow? And there's a spectrum. And you're radical if you're on either end. So it has to be some form of green. And it's like, well, no. Elephants are like a brownish tan. And they're not green. They're more yellow. They're definitely not blue. But elephants, the, Messian, the kingdom of God to a first century Jew was associated with the day of the Lord, the resurrection of the dead, and the Messianic coronation banquet in Jerusalem. And the casting of the wicked into Gehenna. The righteous inherit maimed. It's better to enter the kingdom of God maimed than be thrown with your whole body into Gehenna. Yeah, I mean, you get a new body. But the point is, is the, the opposite of Gehenna is the kingdom of God associated with the day of, of judgment, etc. So anyway, so Matthew twelve twenty eight is used as the primary justification to, to say that Jesus redefined the, the terms or the ideas that Israel hoped in particularly the kingdom of God. And I would say that is just not the case. It just it doesn't make any sense. So let's move on to the next. Uh, so anyway, uh, the, this particular verse uh, is used to... Oh, look at that. All one, 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 one. Should be one, two, three, four. Uh, instead of Matthew 12, 28 being about divine judgment on this false accusation, it gets interpreted as a divine blessing. Instead of it being aimed at unbelievers and the unrepentant, it gets talked about as aimed at believers, a positive thing. Uh, and instead of in the future associated with the age to come and the day of judgment, like the rest of the passage, it gets associated with the present age. And instead of corporately, the kingdom of God comes upon you, plural, instead of corporately, it gets applied individually to an individual believer and I just went to, you know, a big conference and this keynote speaker got up and like his whole message was on how do we get the kingdom of God to come upon us and expand the kingdom of God and unleash the kingdom of God. And it's like, what? those aren't even the verbs. They don't use those verbs. We don't establish the kingdom. We don't expand the kingdom. We don't grow the kingdom. We don't build the kingdom. We don't 
like all the verbs that we use in the modern church with the kingdom of God, they don't use in the New Testament because that's not what they're talking about. Right? You pray for the kingdom to come. You enter the kingdom because it's at the day of the Lord. It's in the age to come. You inherit the kingdom because it's something that's given by God as the inheritance of the saints, etc. So all the verbs are off because the narrative, the redemptive narrative is off. Does that make sense? All right. Um, So, wait, go back for just a second. Yeah, if the kingdom of God comes upon you, that means that you've been cut off from divine forgiveness, verse 32, at the day of judgment, and you will be condemned. Akin to the declaration of the kingdom of God being at hand, it was meant to instill fear and remorse leading to repentance. That's what the kingdom of God comes upon you. So we're going to kind of work through a little bit more of that uh, to kind of justify that statement. So next slide. Um, Matthew 12 uh, and Jewish apocalypticism. So, oh, these are some slides. Sorry. Um, it's been a while since I've used this PowerPoint, so I'm trying to, like, sorry. So, uh, Jews in the first century viewed the universe different and time different. That's what makes first century Jews different than modern Westerners. Like I said this morning, they had lots of different kind of cultural things and how you marry and bury and eat together and that kind of stuff. But those are like small things. On a big picture, what makes them different is how they viewed the universe and how they viewed time. And so to kind of get a a little bit more of a feel of how they viewed the world, their world view, we're just going to talk about those two things for uh, a second. So Jews viewed the universe as a plurality of heavens. So in the the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth plural. I put three ages. Some Jews viewed five, some viewed ten, some viewed seven. Most viewed seven. But you kind of have the upper heavens. You can have multiple heavens in between. But you have the upper heavens. And God rules at the height of the heavens. Or the heaven of heavens. You get that phrase in the Hebrew Bible eight times. Heaven of heavens. So God rules at the height of the heavens on a heavenly throne. Over the heavens and the earth. And creates Adam in his image to rule on an earthly paradise throne within a sanctuary. And so God rules from the height of the heavens in his heavenly sanctuary or temple and over the earth. And Jews viewed Eden kind of as the image of the heavenly sanctuary. And Adam was the original priest and they called to keep and serve uh, the garden as the same verbs that are given to the Levitical priests uh, later on. Uh, There's even a tradition that the garments that he put on Adam and Eve were passed down through the flood and put on uh, Aaron at at the ceremony. Obviously, it's not true, but it was kind of created to emphasize that Adam and Eve were viewed as priests uh, in the earthly sanctuary in the beginning. Next slide. Uh, So the main different opinion throughout church history is the Greek view of the universe. And the Greeks generally, there's lots of different Greek views, particularly between the philosophers and kind of common mythology. But generally speaking, the Greeks divided the universe into two parts, material and immaterial. And the immaterial world uh, was non-physical and static. It never changed. And that is the ideal existence. Most Greeks viewed that the material world was created by kind of a, a demigod of some sort, an artisan, a demiurge, and... That he took the ideal realities of the immaterial world and created the material world in kind of a broken state. 
because he's a broken being. And so, um, so anyway, those are kind of the two different views of the universe, the heavens and the earth. In the heavens, the universe being surrounded by cosmic waters and God ruling at the height of the heavens and the earth, over the heavens and the earth, versus the Greek view that has a material and immaterial. And uh, in the Hebrew, in the, in the biblical or, or Jewish view, the heavens are plural, they're continuous, meaning, you know, so for example, like, um, like Second Enoch or Third Baruch in, in Jewish literature at the time, Baruch and Enoch do these heavenly travels through the heavens, up through the different levels of the heavens. Um, and so they're continuous as they go up and come down. And the scriptures also, you know, God goes up and comes down. People are taken up like, like Enoch, like Elijah. Um, and they're physical, right? So like in Isaiah 6, you know, like there's actual, like he hears things, he sees things. A cold touches his lips. They're, they're, they're physical, uh, whereas in the Greek view, it's discontinuous, right? There's no, once you go from material to immaterial, you don't go back and forth, right? And, uh, and it's non-physical. There's one immaterial uh, world, which later on got viewed as heaven singular instead of heavens plural. Uh, and it's uh, non-physical and it's static. It never changes, right? It's an eternal sing-along. Uh, whereas in the Jewish view, like in, uh, what is it, 1 Kings 22 with Ahab and God calls a council in the height of the heavens to say among the heavenly hosts to say, what are we going to do with Ahab and the idolatry? And a lying spirit steps forward. It's not like one-to-one, you know, in the heavens, but it's dynamic. It changes. There's time in the heavens. I don't, there's, you know, Revelation 8, there's silence for half an hour Anyway, so these are kind of the two main contrasting views of kind of the structure of the universe, the playing field, so to speak. All right, next. So as the, in the biblical redemptive narrative, as you push that forward from Eden and the sin of Adam and Eve, God is ruling over the heavens and the earth in mercy. And the coming day of God is primarily about God restoring creation. He's going to make a new heavens and new earth. That's the overarching narrative, right? The restoration of all things or the renewal of all things. That God is going to purge the heavens of wickedness, demons, rebellious angels, and he's going to purge the earth of wickedness at the day of judgment, in the resurrection of the dead, etc. All right, next. Um, and that creates the two ages, which we talked about this morning, and that's what eternity. Eternity, in the Jewish view, is unending time. So a different view of the universe and a different view of time. So time has no opposite in the Bible. Time's just time. It's like a tree. What's the opposite of a tree? It's just a tree. Right? So the opposite of time is not. It's just time. God created in the beginning, and time is going in one direction towards its conclusion. That's it. Right? And eternity is just the plural of ages, both in Hebrew and Greek. And so eternity is unending time. Okay, next slide. Uh, in the Greek universe, so this is Plato's world, you have an immaterial world, a timeless eternity. So eternity, the term eternity within the Greek universe means timelessness. And it's the opposite of time. So you'll get this in the Western mind that time has an opposite, which is eternity. 
And uh, in the material world is time full. So time was at the top of Plato's kind of dichotomy between the two worlds. And so, like, everything has an ideal form that has a material broken copy. So, like, there's brown chairs. So there's the form of brown and the form of chair. Like, there's the perfect chairness in the immaterial world. And that finds broken manifestation in all of the brownish, chair-ish things in the material world, right? And time is at the height of that ideal form and uh, copy relationship in which time is ultimately a static reality of non-changing and the whole existence of time in the material world is a broken manifestation as things change away from their ideal form. I know that probably is like... But it's just a little bit, he wrote a whole book in a, in, on, uh, called Timaeus in which he articulates how time unfolds in the material world and it's all based on little triangles. So the triangle was Plato's Adam and the Greek philosophers loved math because it was related to how they structured the universe in material and immaterial, right? So anyway, so the goal in that universe is to get out of the material world. By death. That's why Socrates' death was so important because that's how you get out. And the parable of the cave is you see light in this cave from the fire and you think that's actually light. But there's actually a whole other world outside the cave. The sun, which is the immaterial, intelligible world, right? Anyway, and the, and the way you get to there is by death to escape the material world and go to the immaterial world. <clears throat> so... Um, in the Jewish, yeah, next one. So, in the Jewish apocalyptic narrative, time simply is, and eternity is unending time after the day of the Lord. And the structure of the universe is not split in two, but rather a plurality of heavens in which God rules at the height of the heavens over all of creation. And history is moving towards a climactic end known as the day of the Lord which initiates the judgment of the living and the dead, the resurrection of the dead, the messianic kingdom, and Gehenna, the lake of fire, the punishment of the wicked outside of Jerusalem. And this makes the two ages. And this is how all of Israel's redemptive history is understood by Jews at the time of the New Testament. Does that make sense? Different view of the universe, different view of time. Okay, next slide. So the four principal events of Jewish apocalyptic literature. This is going to get a little dorky for some of you. Some of you might find it like cool. But when you study Jewish literature, there's like we talked about this morning, this is it. So if you want to become an expert in what Jews believe, you just read this. You can buy it all. You can read it all in a few months. It's not that much. Um, And this is the stuff that gives us a clue about what Jews are thinking. and But particularly, there's three books, 1st Enoch, 4th Ezra, and 2nd Baruch, that are kind of at the hub. That's what we have the most copies of, translated into the most languages. So if you really want to know what Jews are like thinking about and what they find is inspirational, none of them viewed these three books as like scripture, right? The same way that we don't read John Piper, Tim Keller, Francis Chan, or whatever. We don't view these as scripture, but we view them as inspired. 
right? Or inspiring. And so Jews at the time, likewise, they don't view these books as scriptural, but they, it's obvious that everyone is reading them. Because otherwise you wouldn't have them copied and translated throughout the diaspora, all across the Roman Empire, right? And so we know that they're important and they reflect kind of common Jewish understanding. And the main aspect of these books is that they're focused on the future heavily. So, and it's based on the past, particularly Adam and Eve. And so the sin of Adam and Eve has caused this domino effect throughout Israel's history and tradition that climaxes in these four principal events. The day of the Lord, the judgment of the wicked, the resurrection of the dead, and the messianic kingdom. All right, so next PowerPoint. So we kind of looked at the biblical kind of Jewish narrative. These are some examples of Jewish literature at the time of the New Testament that talk about the same things. And so the day of the Lord, the day of the mighty one, Second Baruch 55, or in Messianic terms, the day of the elect one or the day of the Messiah in First Enoch 61. It's most commonly understood the day of the Lord as the day of judgment, which of course is what we're talking about in Matthew 12. Or the day of the great judgment. And it's abbreviated as this day, that day, the day. Right? So Hebrews 10. Let us not forsake meeting together, but spur one another on in love and good deeds. All the more as you see the day approaching. Right? The day was its shorthand for the day of the Lord. Next slide. So the judgment, often the day of judgment is simply abbreviated as the judgment. So right after this, in Matthew 12, they demand a sign, right? In the next verses in Matthew 12, and Jesus says you're not getting a sign, except the sign of Jonah, that the Messiah is going to be buried in the heart of the earth and raised from the dead. And right after that, the men of a wicked generation ask for a sign, the 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 How's he? I'm not going to look. Dang it. See, this is why you have to memorize scripture. You don't botch it when you're talking about it. Dang it. Um, The men of Nineveh, three dates and three nights in the heart of the earth, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, Someone greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. And so your own fellow Jewish exorcists, they'll rise up and condemn you at the day of judgment. The men of Nineveh are going to condemn you at the day of judgment. The men of the, the queen of the south is going to rise up at the judgment and condemn you. And you're going to be condemned by your own words. Like, it's just a... Barrage of you're going to be condemned at the judgment because of your arrogant attitude and this false accusation. Anyway, so the judgment uh, is a reference to the day of judgment. And it's very common, the judgment, the day of judgment in Jewish literature at the time. Or the judgment, the great eternal judgment or the great or the judgment seat of God, which, of course, is what you get in um, In uh, 2 Corinthians 5 and Romans 14, the judgment seat of the Messiah or the judgment seat of of God, it's literally a bench. It's it's just talking about the the, uh, literal judgment at the end of the age. Salvation is is thus generally uh, understood in reference to the day of judgment and the associated wrath of God. You're saved from the wrath to come. 
You're saved from the coming judgment. You're justified in light of the coming judgment. You're propitiated. The wrath of God is propitiated in light of the coming day of wrath. And you're redeemed. You're paid for in light of the coming recompense of God at the judgment. Okay, next uh, slide. The resurrection of the dead is talking about resurrected bodies. Literally out of the earth. Um, And it's associated with the renewal of creation as a whole. So the resurrection of the dead is associated with a new heavens and new earth throughout Jewish literature. Particularly, it's a restored Edenic paradise. So what Adam and Eve botched in the beginning, God is going to make new in the end. And this is what eternal life and immortality are talking about. So when Paul uses those phrases and in the Gospels of eternal life and immortality, they're talking about the resurrection of the dead, resurrected bodies, not an eternal ethereal existence in an immaterial world. Does that make sense? All right, next. And then, so the fourth one is the Messianic kingdom. So the Messiah or the anointed one, the elect one, or the righteous one will sit on the throne of glory. And the throne of glory is the glorified Davidic throne in Jerusalem. Uh, He's the ultimate agent of divine judgment and resurrection. And the phrase son of man is particularly out of first Enoch. And so that phrase that's used in the gospel 70 times uh, is not used like it is in the book of Ezekiel to mean a son of Adam. Literally, it's the same word in Hebrew. But it's used the same way throughout the Gospels as it's used in First Enoch, meaning a deified kind of Messiah who's going to do a cosmic renewal, judge the living and the dead, raise the dead, etc. And so that's what's associated with that phrase. All right, next. So the four principal events of Jewish, here's a couple examples. The day of judgment will be the end of this age and the beginning of the immortal age to come in which corruption has passed away, 4th Ezra 7. 2nd Baruch 72 uh, through 74, they're real short, they're like paragraph chapters. So when I'm doing dot, 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 I'm not skipping much. But it's the conclusion of a a vision that Baruch, the scribe of, of Jeremiah has in which he sees all of Israel's history as a, a progression of bright clouds and dark clouds. And it's, it's Israel's positive aspects in Israel's history and negative aspects, you know, when Israel goes like this. And so it's a, the apocalypse of the clouds, bright and dark, bright and dark. And it concludes in chapter 72 through 74 with the final bright cloud, which is the Messianic kingdom. So it says, When the nations are moved and the time of my anointed one comes, he will call all nations... And some of them were Gentiles, and some of them he will spare, others he will kill. It will happen that after he has brought down everything which is in the world and has sat down in eternal peace on the throne of the kingdom, then joy will be revealed and rest will appear. Then health will descend and dew and illness will vanish and fear and tribulation and lamentation will pass away from among men. And joy will encompass the earth. For that time is the end of that which is corruptible. And the beginning of that which is incorruptible. Right? So this is why in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul is saying, How can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? Meaning the resurrection is already happening now spiritually. There's no resurrection of the body. Paul concludes with, I tell you the truth, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. 
You guys are saying the resurrection is already happening, the day of the Lord's already come, the kingdom's already here, spiritually. But you can't enter the kingdom of God unless your body is transformed because mortality has to put on immortality. Corruption has to put on incorruption in order to inherit the kingdom of God because that's what the scriptures say. It's just like point, point blank. Jewish narrative demands this logic, right? And so in the twinkling of an eye, we are going to be transformed and then you will enter the kingdom of God. That's the logic of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. If that didn't connect, you have to understand how Jews viewed history for it to connect the gravity of what Paul says. Anyway, so next, so Matthew 12 and Jewish apocalyptic thought, meaning two age thought. The day of judgment, verse 36. The age to come, verse 32. The son of man, verse 32. The kingdom of God, verse 28. And the son of David. These are all the phrases that Jews commonly associated with that worldview. Expecting the coming climactically of the day of the Lord, the resurrection, the judgment, the messianic kingdom together. Right? Uh, so next. Uh, yep. That's how it looks. Next. Now, secondly, you have to deal with the common negative associations with the language of come upon. And so this is out of the Deuteronomic covenant and Deuteronomy 28, specifically, in which God says, If you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, then all of these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And this gets picked up in the prophetic literature consistently that because of Israel's rejection of the, of the covenant and particularly idolatry, then disaster comes upon Israel over and over by the hand of God because they've turned away from the Lord. And so come upon gets rehearsed so many times in the prophetic literature. Literally, take a picture of it and then do a study of it. It's shocking just... The consistent language over and over of divine judgment and wrath and destruction coming upon Israel. Next slide. So you likewise get the same language in the New Testament and other places. For example, in Luke 21, watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down in dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. Or Ephesians 5, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. For you yourselves, 1 Thessalonians 5, are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. So again, this language of coming, the Lord coming upon people is primarily associated with negativity. Now, the blessings of God also come upon you in Deuteronomy 28, but that's not what gets picked up in the prophetic literature and in the prophetic tradition. It's never talked about or rehearsed after that. What gets rehearsed over and over and over is the negative aspects of curse and judgment that comes upon Israel, right? So the language of come upon is highly associated with negativity. You don't want God to come upon you. You don't want it. It's a bad thing, right? Because it's associated with divine judgment. All right, next slide. Uh, so this is where you get into Greek verbal aspect theory, which I talked about a little bit at the beginning. And so I'm not going to labor through it. And some of you who are geeks, most of you don't care. 
But as long as you get the point that a lot of ver- a lot of languages, verbs don't communicate time. They communicate point of view. That's what you need to take away. And that ancient Greek was aspectual, not temporal. Ancient Greek views communicated the point of view, perfective, imperfective, or stative, not time, past, present, future. Does that make sense? Um, the time of action is determined. The time of action is determined by context, including adverbs, historical references, and genre. Next slide. So these are the main works that are done on Greek verbal aspect theory. If you're a dork and want to track it down, go for it. And you can search YouTube, Greek verbal aspect, and you're going to get Greek linguists talk on and on because it's massive. It's a revolution. But the problem is, is modern New Testament studies has taken Jewish eschatology, Jewish view of the future, particularly the kingdom of God, and it rests on Greek temporal verbs. So the kingdom of God is used with present and past tense verbs. And I remember I emailed, go to the next slide, I remember Stan Porter, who teaches at McMaster in Canada, he, he's like the father of this whole thing, and he's freakishly brilliant. And I emailed him like 15 years ago, and I was like, so why has not this not been like worked out in modern New Testament studies? That if Greek verbs have been the primary justification for saying Jewish eschatology is happening now spiritually. Who has talked about this? And he's like, no one has. You should do this. Your, your doctoral thesis. And I was like, ah, I can't. My life doesn't work. Um, and so, but anyway, we're getting there. Okay, it's going to happen. And so, uh, so these are the main ones. Constantine Campbell, he taught at Trinity Evangelical for a number of years. He's back in Australia. He's an Australian guy. And he's kind of the main guy now. He's written, that was his doctoral thesis on Greek verbal aspect. But he's written a lot of stuff. So if you're like into, want to like study this, you can get on Amazon. Con Campbell, all of his stuff is just phenomenal. He's awesome. All right, next. Uh, This is Stan Porter's kind of illustration of the idea of Greek verbal aspect, which is kind of cool. I'll go ahead and read it. If I'm a television correspondent in a helicopter flying over a parade, I view the parade in its immediacy from the vantage outside the action as perfective. That is, it's entirely as a single and complete whole. If I'm a spectator standing with others alongside the road watching the parade pass in front of me, I view it view the action immersed within it as imperfective. That is, as an event in progress. And if I'm the parade manager in the corporate headquarters, considering all the conditions in existence at this parade, including not only all the arrangements that are coming to fruition, but all the accompanying events that allow the parade to operate, I view the process not in its particulars or its immediacy, but as state of, that is, a complex condition or state of affairs in existence. And so a lot of times the perfective... The whole is used with past events because you can see it. Hindsight's twenty twenty, right? And imperfective is used with present things because it's happening now. But like the perfect, but like in the prophetic tradition in the in the Hebrew Bible and in the Septuagint when it's translated into Greek, the prophets use the perfective to talk about future things to communicate the surety of it. So they they talk about the future hope of Israel and Jerusalem and the coming of the Messiah in perfective 
as though it's completed to communicate the surety that it's going to happen, right? So anyway, that gives you a little, but present things are happening imperfective. They're dynamically unfolding. So the verbs don't communicate time. They communicate point of view of the action happening. Does that make sense? All right, next slide. Uh, so the Hebrew literature uses the same idea of the, the uh, perfective tense in relation to the future. Thus, that's what the, my article is arguing, that Matthew twelve twenty eight, the, the Greek verb to come upon is perfective, talking about the, the certainty of the future. And uh, uh, likewise, aorist verbs that traditionally are understood as past tense are talking about future things in the New Testament. And it also fixes 1 Thessalonians 2.16, which has the exact same Greek structure and is talking in the same way about the future uh, uh, judgment of those that persecute the church in Thessalonica. Uh, so it fixes that verse too, which has always been a complication. All right, next. Uh, so let's just walk through the passage in conclusion to give a little bit of context for what Jesus is saying. And if we translate verse 28 in the future, it fixes everything and falls directly in line. So Jesus is accused of being demonized because people think that he's the Messiah. And Jesus says it's irrational. Divided kingdoms don't stand. Who else drives out demons by Satan? And if I drove that demon out by by the power of Satan, your fellow Jews who drive out demons, who do they drive out demons by? They will be your judges. At what point? Right? Matthew, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. When? At the day of judgment. So your fellow exorcists who drive out demons presumably by the Spirit of God, if they drive out demons by the Spirit of God, and you're saying I drive them out by Satan, then they will be your judges at the day of judgment, along with your words, along with the people of Nineveh, along with the Queen of the South. They're all going to judge you at the day of judgment, right? Uh and uh, so that gives the context for, but if I drive out that demon by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God will certainly come upon you negatively, along with your fellow exorcists judging you at the end, right? And then he says, but the binding of this demon proves that I am the Messiah and I will plunder Satan's house at the end. There's nothing to read into the binding of the strongman parable. Because Satan is bound throughout Jewish literature at the time, at the day of judgment, when God hoards the demons in the heavens and the wicked on the earth into a lake of fire. And so the plundering of the house of Satan is associated with the day of judgment and the resurrection on new heavens and new earth. So he's simply saying, if I drove out that demon, I have the power to bind the strongman, and that proves that I'm going to plunder his house. At the day of the Lord in the age to come. That proves that I drove out that demon by the finger of God. Not by the hand of Satan. And then he shifts gears in the next verse, verse 30. It's immoral. And so he says, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather scatters. Which is the common kind of Jewish apocalyptic. The judgment of the righteous and the wicked. 
And so this event of me driving out this demon and you guys accusing me, God is using to sift the chaff from the wheat and separate for the coming judgment. And then he says, uh, disrespecting the spirit closes the window of divine mercy because this age is associated with divine mercy. And the age to come is associated with divine judgment and the closure of divine mercy and patience, right? And so the fact that you guys have disrespected and slandered or blasphemed the Spirit. If you had just blasphemed me, that's one thing. But you blaspheme the Spirit. And that guarantees the certainty of your judgment. You will not be forgiven in this age or the age to come. And the point of the saying is not to like highlight some unforgivable sin. It's to communicate the certainty of future judgment. That's the point of why he says it, right? You won't find forgiveness in this age or the age to come because your false accusation has sifted the righteous from the wicked and you are certainly going to be judged, right? And then he goes into, they are immoral. Good trees produce good fruit. Bad trees produce bad fruit. Out of the treasure within you comes forth what you speak from your mouth. You spoke in this evil accusation because you're evil. And you live for this age. You live for the praise of man. You're greedy inside. Outwardly you're clean, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. Greed, selfish ambition, hypocrisy, etc. So this is why... Because of your love of the praise of man and your greed that you won't acknowledge that I'm the guy. This is why you've made this false accusation. And then um, uh, you brood of vipers, which of course brood of vipers is about as ugly and like, I mean, Satan, the guy from the garden, like he's the original viper. And so Jesus calling the religious elite that everybody says they're the righteous ones. They're the ones that are going to inherit the greatest glory in the age to come. And Jesus comes along and says, you guys who are first are going to be last. You're actually a brood of vipers. You're not a company of the righteous. You're a brood of demonized vipers. That is just so intense. Like the social tension. You just can't do that, man. You can't. Unless you're God incarnate and you're actually going to judge the living and the dead. And the angels, the multitudes around the throne of God at the height of the heavens are at your command. Legions of them. And they are going to come with you and transform everything. Raise the dead. Make everything new. Cleanse the heavens and the earth. Then you don't care. You don't care about the games. You don't care about the BS, the pretense. You don't care about the hypocrisy. You're going to call it out and bring people, whatever it takes, out of darkness into light to come to terms with reality, right? Brood of vipers. So intense. I don't have the guts to do it. I did when I was younger, but whatever. Okay, so, uh, yeah, and so then that concludes with the basis, all of this, the irrational, immoral false accusation is the basis for your eternal judgment. On the day of judgment, people will give an account for every word. By your words, you'll be justified. By your words, you'll be condemned. All right, next. So thus, the kingdom of God, if I drove that demon out by the finger of God or the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God will certainly come upon you negatively as divine judgment aimed at the unrepentant, in the future associated with the day of judgment, the age to come, 
Corporately, thus, the kingdom of God comes upon you. It means you've been cut off from divine forgiveness. At the day of judgment, you'll be condemned. Akin to the declaration of the kingdom being at hand. It's meant to cause a response of repentance of people coming out in fear and trembling. All right, next. So the conclusions are, this translation of verse 28, it's not about realizing Israel's future resurrection, eternal life, the kingdom of God. It's not about redefining any of that. It fits in line with traditional Jewish eschatology of the time. So it falls in line at how Jews understood the kingdom of God associated with the day of judgment, the resurrection, the age to come. So an interpretation of that verb in future tense fixes everything. Otherwise, you have one verse that means something completely different than the entire rest of the passage. Does that make sense? But it makes much more sense if that one verse is talking about the same thing that Jews commonly understand and the rest of the passage is talking about. Does that make sense? Secondly, it accords with the overall negative message and tone of the passage. Third, it accords with the negative association with the verbiage to come upon in relation to the day of judgment. So instead of a mystical, esoteric like a secret knowledge. Jesus has this secret revelation that nobody can quite understand that he's trying to like, it's a spiritual universalistic thing. That's not what's going on. It's not esoteric. And it's not subversive. To redefine the messianic kingdom, Matthew 12, 28 is a simply a blunt declaration of divine condemnation about this false accusation undergirded by ardent apocalyptic expectations. The day of the Lord is coming you guys will give an account for this, and it's going to be bad news because the window of forgiveness has closed on you, right? And it doesn't mean literally, like, I think Jesus wants them to repent and be saved from the wrath to come, but he's trying to communicate the severity of the situation and the false accusation. All right, hopefully that's helpful. That's the end of my presentation. My goal was to kind of work through Matthew twelve twenty eight. And the same thing with the kingdom of God is at hand. It's the same thing. It makes much more sense in traditional categories. Luke 17 is the kingdom of God coming with signs to be observed. Makes much more sense within traditional expectations in Luke 17 as a parallel to Matthew 24. And the two sayings in Paul, it's the same way. Right? Romans 14, 17. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy... All of Romans 14 doesn't have anything to do with, with realized eschatology. It has to do with each man standing before his master at the day of judgment, literally in verse 10, the day of judgment. The whole context is do what matters, relate to each other, and what matters eternally. And that's what he's talking about. The day of judgment is not a matter of eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The age to come is not a matter of eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It makes much more sense within traditional Jewish categories. And likewise, Colossians 1.13, it's the same way, being transported or turned to the kingdom of the beloved Son. So you have two sayings in Paul, and you basically have three to five in the gospel and all the other sayings, every other saying of Paul about the kingdom of God is associated with the coming of Christ Jesus, the day of judgment, the resurrection of the dead, the age to come. Except two sayings. 
In the same way in the gospel, they're all universally fit into this common narrative except a few sayings. But these few sayings get stacked on top of each other to prove that Jesus and the apostles radically redefined everything. Right? So I just wanted to take, just to give a little context, I wanted to take one of those, break it down to illustrate that the, the disputable passages actually make more sense within a traditional Jewish expectation rather than a reversal of it. Does that make sense? Okay. My goal, again, is so that you understand the Jewish narrative and it can interpret the death of the Messiah within that. And you can hold to the gospel is the death of the Messiah for our sins to justify us and save us from the coming wrath so that we can live forever. The resurrection of the dead, eternal life. We're going to live forever, beloved, not because we're awesome, but because the gift of God as a gift, not a wage, extended mercifully to the Gentiles who were brought into this Jewish story and we're not changing the Jewish story. Does that make sense? We're part of a Jewish story and we're going to stand with the God of Israel to the climactic end, which I think is pretty soon. I mean, if it's not soon, like, it's, it's like what she went home. It's at the end where it's just like, this thing has to end soon, right? <laughs> Sierra, it's like, it's, yeah, are you here? Yeah, yeah, you're here, okay? It's, it's like, how much longer can this really go on? This has got to, and so we are in that hour, beloved, and it is, it, we need to be sober about who God is, what's happening on the earth, and where it's going in the future, so that we're on the right side of history. Right? When the judgment happens. That's where we want to be. On the right side of history. Matthew 25. When the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne and He separates the nations. The Gentiles. That's us. For how we related to the God of Israel. And how we related to Him. Amen? Alright, let me pray for us. Lord, thank You for tonight. Thank You for Your grace and Your mercy towards us. That even though we were without God and without hope in the world. That You have drawn us Gentiles near by the grace of God and your mercy as a gift. And so we look, we look to you, God, and your son at your right hand who is soon returning to grant us immortality and eternal life. We thank you, God, that you have not left us without hope. And I pray that tonight the things that have been spoken in your word would be sealed by the Holy Spirit. Anything that was spoken out of, uh, out of a, uh, of, by your spirit would be marginalized and pushed to the side, and the things that are true would be sealed by the Spirit in our hearts for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, We just have one handheld, so if you have a question, raise your hand and they can just yell at you. Yeah, sure. Or why don't, actually, why don't you, you and I can, because I can project. All right, Michelle, you had some questions about Greek verbs. And <laughs> okay, raise your hand and I'll bring the microphone. Uh, I have one question about Egypt. Yeah. Yeah. Are they more Christian now than they ever been? I love reading about Egypt. Yeah, Egypt is yeah, Egypt's different than the rest of the Middle East because it has the only native population that has survived Islam. And so about 10% of Egypt is Coptic Christian and then or 9%, 1% is every other kind of Christian. Evangelical, Protestant, Catholic, 
Greek Orthodox is less than 1%. 9% is Coptic, and they live in their own universe. They have their own economy. They have their own dress, their own sayings, their own greetings, their own... They do business with each other. They produce. They have their own production industries. They have their own religious vacation uh, with all the monasteries. They live in their own universe, basically, and it's developed for 1,600 years. Everybody calls the Coptic Church the sleeping giant, that if they kind of wake up, the Middle East can really be evangelized. Yeah. Um, actually, for the stream, I'm going to have to run this back and forth so it picks up on Yeah. Okay, well, I have some comments before my question. Do it. Um, first of all, uh, God surprises me all the time because uh, all the things that you've been teaching is not even what I was looking for. Uh, I felt like uh, I needed an interpreter. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Doing the best I can. I'm a dork. I, I recognize it. <laughs> but in our home, in our home group, we're going through Revelation right now. And so I was expecting some things on Revelation that would help me out with the first tonight. And uh, we didn't even have a scripture from Revelation through this whole thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but this is a question for you anyway. The scripture says that we're not to be ignorant of the things Dispensational scholars do. Most, like, dispensational scholars do, but most, you know, Reformed evangelical scholars don't. Um, I don't set a timeline. That's kind of my, I just kind of think I, it can't go on much longer, so I think we're kind of at the end. Of course, every generation before us has expected that, and it's a good thing, right? Because to the oracle, to the oracle in Isaiah's day, the day of God's at hand, Isaiah was just a conduit, a steward of that oracle. To Zephaniah, it was at hand. To Malachi, to, Ze- to Zechariah, it was at hand. To Jesus and John the Baptist, it's at hand. To Peter and 1 Peter 4, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, love one another deeply, offering hospitality, etc. So every generation, it's right to relate to the oracle as our generation and the urgency of it. Um, because to the oracle is true. To God, time is relative. A day is a thousand years. So, uh, so it's good to believe that the Lord is returning in our generation. It's just that, I, I mean, I don't see how it's going to be another generation. Like, how much longer is it going to go on like this? So, um, as far as Revelation, uh, Revelation fits within a first century Jewish apocalyptic worldview the best. Right As the climax of this age, the gathering of the Gentiles against Israel and Jerusalem, the final outpouring of divine judgments to shake humanity, and then the glorious restoration of Jerusalem, a new Jerusalem. Jews believed in a new Jerusalem. Not, of course, later Gentiles, they hijacked that, particularly Augustine, the city of God, Jerusalem, is Rome, the church triumphant, the Roman narrative, 
and the heavenly immaterial Jerusalem, right? Neither of which are actually Jerusalem on this earth. So, so Revelation really fits best within kind of first century Jewish expectation. That helps, in my opinion. For having me. Uh, no, uh, I think uh, Matthew 12, 28, enlightening. I appreciate it. Uh, as far as Second Advent, you place New Heavens New Earth after Second Advent to the culmination of it, I guess. Yeah, so there's always the Kiliasm question. Uh, did the two ages, does the age to come have a transition? Yeah, this, it's always the first question. Uh, so, chiliasm, or an idea that the age to come has a transitionary period, usually a thousand years. In, in 4th Ezra 7, it's 400 years, but uh, generally it's a thousand years. And there's really only four references in all of Jewish literature to the idea of chiliasm, or a thousand year transition into the age to come. The majority of Jews just believed in two ages. But Presumably, some Jews believe that the two ages, the age to come, had a thousand-year transition. And that's based on interpretation of Genesis 2. That Adam died within, in the day that he ate of it, he will die. And he died within a thousand years because a day is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. So this idea of redemptive history being divided into thousand-year creation days... You get four references in Jewish literature. So it's not common, and it's not in the Gospels, clearly. And I would argue it's not in the Epistles. In my book, I, I say it is in 1 Corinthians 15. I've changed my mind since then. I just don't see it. I wanted to see it because it is revealed at the end of the first century, after everyone else, in Revelation 20. So the last living apostle has a revelation from God that says, no, actually, there is going to be a transition into the age to come based on a thousand year expectation of creation. And so um, so you get a lot of emphasis on Kiliasm in the early apostolic writings after the New Testament because of Revelation 20. But it's not there anywhere else in the New Testament. So I agree that there's going to be a thousand year transition to the final new heavens and new earth. I just don't emphasize it. Because it's not emphasized by Jews, and it's not emphasized in the New Testament. What's happened in the modern academy is that the three narratives of redemptive history, Kiliasm is has been used to represent those three narratives. So premillennialism is associated with the Jewish narrative and restored creation. Amillennialism has been used to association with the Greek narrative and an immaterial heavenly destiny. And post-millennialism is associated with the Roman narrative and taking over the earth and creating a utopian Christian society. But as things have kind of unfolded, now you have post-millennialists that believe in a new heavens and new earth. You, have, you, can, you, can have a pre, you can have a Jewish narrative without a millennial transition. So you can have a new heavens and new earth without a transition into that after Jesus returns. So, Kiliasm needs to be 
detached from talking about redemptive narrative, right? And we can talk about, our, do we believe in a Jewish narrative or a Greek narrative or a Roman narrative or some combination of those? And then we can talk about, is there a transition? Is there a transitional period in the Roman narrative? Is there a chiliastic period in the Greek narrative, which I guess would be like purgatory or some sort? Or is there, you know, is there transitionary period in the Jewish narrative and we can kind of separate those two. Does that make so sense? Is there a Jewish, so does the Jewish uh, narrative and the Christian narrative always must agree? Well, the, the Christian narrative was Jewish in the beginning. Yes. So the entire Christian movement was a Jewish sect. Yeah, Judeo-Christian, right. So all of the first believers were Jews. The vast majority, even after, in the first century, were Jews. But it's in the late second and third century that the Greek narrative comes in, and you start to have these borderlines that are dri- that are drawn between the second century Greek Greco-Roman apologists, like uh, Justin Martyr, and then later Irenaeus, and and the early rabbinic rabbis in the second and third centuries. And so, but early on, it was all just a Jewish sect. You had, these Jews believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and then Jews that did not believe he was the Messiah. And then, and so that's why thousands of Orthodox Jews believed in Acts 2, Acts 5, because they're not changing the narrative. They're just convinced that God ordained this Jew from Nazareth to to suffer and die for our sins like he promised, within an unchanged Jewish narrative. And so you have thousands of Jews that believe. All of a sudden in the second century, when the narrative changes to a Greek narrative and then later to a Roman narrative, Jews stop believing because Constantine's sword, right? James Carroll, you know that book? Real famous. Constantine's sword comes upon the Jews and it stays upon the Jews throughout the Middle Ages and on through. And so now all of a sudden in the last hundred years, scholarship has swung and dispensationalism has stepped in, and the rebirth of Israel has happened, and now all of a sudden, oh, maybe Jesus and the apostles were Jews, and now you have Jews coming to Jesus again, because the narrative, once again, is kind of Jewish. Now, the thing is, it's never clear. It's never like, here's a Jewish narrative, here's a Greek narrative, here's a Roman narrative. It's mixture, like mad and confusion. And there's always the Jewish narrative poking through, because of this. For 2,000 years, it's a bunch of Gentiles running around with a Jewish book written by Jews, for Jews, of Jews, about the God of Israel, right? And so you're constantly, throughout church history, you have Jewish ideas, Jewish narrative poking through, right? But generally, you have a dominating Greek or Roman narrative kind of subjugating those Jewish ideas, if that makes sense. But now, all of a sudden, at the end of the age... By the hand of God, the Jewish narrative is increasingly coming out to the forefront, inshallah. Right. Yeah, Kiliasm, and that was part of why Kiliasm was developed to cope with 
those dynamics in the prophetic literature. But Kiliasm kind of died out once the rabbinic movement started. The, the hard, like, two-age, apocalyptic, because it was associated with 70 AD and Bar Kokhba, for the next, like, three centuries, early rabbinic Judaism kind of pushed eschatology to the side and pushed it down, and Kiliasm died out. So you don't hardly have any Kiliastic ideas in rabbinic history or modern Judaism. Um, it depends. There's lots of different Judaisms. and uh, But most Orthodox Jewish groups are uh, quite apocalyptic. And uh, there is weirdness in the rabbinic tradition um, and lots of like fluff add-on. But the main ideas are still, they're still there. Mm-hmm. Nelly had one. Mm-hmm. You have to pull up on your phone. Thanks for having me. So you said something earlier at church about the apostasy. What is the apostasy in the church? Um, Okay. Are you talking about Matthew 24 or are you talking about uh, 1 Thessalonians 2? didn't say Daniel 9, I don't think. Yeah, kingdom passages. I'm not sure what what's being referenced. I talked about the apostasy. Right. I mean, to apostatize is to fall away from the faith, which in Jewish tradition is associated with the history of Israel and idolatry. And so the, that's where you get this creation during the time of the kings and then the prophetic tradition of the remnant of Israel. So you have the majority is apostate or has fallen away from the covenant and is into idolatry in the nations and the remnant will be saved from the wrath to come. And so Paul views the Gentiles as being grafted into that remnant as Gentiles, not becoming Jews, but they're part of the remnant that will be saved from the wrath to come. But the apostasy is kind of a global spirit of the age and of the Gentiles that part of Israel has fallen into. And so I think for Paul, you know, when he's talking in, uh, in 2 Thessalonians 2 about the, you know, the desecration of the temple and the apostasy, he's just talking about the general the rejection of the covenant by all the nations and within Israel, a a falling away. And so the dichotomy between the church and Israel isn't like a thing in his mind, I don't think. I don't know if that's helpful. Yeah, Yeah, more. Anyone else have one before we <laughs> we we can talk. This is Matthew 24. Yep. Um, what would you say to the brothers or partial brothers' interpretation of Matthew 24, specifically the near time indicators and of of the passage 
generation, correction, it will come upon this generation. Yeah. Would you reject a preterist interpretation, or do you take like a spiritual, like, yes, they were there, they will come? Yeah. Good question. <laughs> yeah, I'll try to make it short. So I would put that in uh, the same category as the problem of the delay and Jesus and, and John the Baptist preaching that the kingdom of God's at hand. And then fast forward 30 years and Peter's still saying it's at hand. And some people are saying it's going on. The day of the Lord's not coming. And, and Peter explained that in Second Peter 3 as times relative to God. Right? He's not slow in keeping. Right, but not to us. And so I would put that same language of at hand with this generation, right, in Matthew 24. And so Jesus, historically, the, he, he has the same ideas, and they're asking him, when will all of this happen? And what is the sign of your coming, the parousia, and the end of the age? And that's what Jesus has in mind. Is the coming of the day of God, the Messiah, the whole Jewish package of eschatology, and the end of the age, which involved the desecration of the temple. And so he's unpacking traditional Jewish eschatology in which all the nations persecute Israel and the remnant within Israel and desecrate the temple. So I don't think Jesus has in mind 70 AD at all. That's my personal uh, opinion, and it doesn't mean that he's not God and can't foresee the future. He just has in mind traditional Jewish eschatology. Um, that that would be my opinion on that. As far as the preterist, yeah, I mean, as far as the preterist interpretation, I think the the preterist interpretation is on the big picture completely invalid because it has no substantiality in the early church. No. Jew after 70 AD understood what happened at 70 AD like modern preterists do. None. And the proof of that is the Didache. The Didache clearly was written after the destruction of the temple and it describes church life and it's as apocalyptic and falls in line, quotes Matthew 24 verbatim and makes no reference to Matthew 24 being fulfilled in any way, shape, or form at 70 AD. So you have a document from the Matthew from the community of Matthew, written after the destruction of the temple, and it's not preterist in the slightest sense. And so if the, if the early Christian community was reading Matthew 24 and they lived through it, you would think that they would interpret it some way because they're there and they're actually quoting Matthew 24 and the destruction of the temple wouldn't they, if they thought that the destruction of the temple meant Matthew 24, they would say it after the fact. Does that make sense? And, the, and chapter 16, the close, the end of the Didache, actually quotes a bunch of Matthew 24 as justification for putting hope in the return of Jesus. But it never references that Matthew 24 was fulfilled in the event that happened just 10 years or so, whatever, before the writing of the Didache. Does that make sense? Right, and lots of and lots of Jews believed before that with Nebuchadnezzar with 
Antiochus Epiphanes with historical divine uh, uh, chastisements that this is the fulfillment of that. But the apocalyptic hermeneutic that developed in Second Temple Judaism took all of the history, the Torah, the writings, and the prophetic literature and projected them to their ultimate end. So it's already happening in Jewish tradition that these things that were thought to be it weren't actually the ultimate end. So I think that's why you have the early Jewish Christians, they don't see 70 AD as it, because they've already developed a hermeneutic that said, it's not it until there's angels and fire in the sky, and it all climactically climactically happens together. Does that make sense? Other questions? Or are we done? We've been here a long time. If you need to roll out, please, go put your kids to bed or whatever. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> um, uh, I just want to do, uh, maybe just say sun on sovereignty. Okay. Specifically, like, God's dominion, and then also um, the importance of, like, Christ being a threatening of the Father at the end of the teaching form. Yeah. How is that helpful in a Jewish framework? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Um, Can I add to that question? Yeah, where, where's the ascension at? Right. So that's why in Acts 2 and why Psalm 110 is the most referenced in the New Testament at the right hand. So you get more references to Psalm 110 than any other chapter if you include all the right hand because right hand comes from Psalm 110. And the association with right hand, why it gets quoted in Acts 2 is that he's sitting at the right hand waiting to make his enemies his footstool, which is also the same thing as referenced in Hebrews 10, that his present position as a priestly position, as in the following verse in Psalm 110, that you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, and on the day of his wrath he will heap up the kings of the earth. That's verse 4 and verse 5. And so the question is, what is the Messiah doing at the right hand of God? So God is, we all agree that God is fully sovereign over the heavens and the earth. From creation to the end, right? I mean, that's all authority, period. So that's, none of that's never in question. So all the strange language of somehow he lost dominion or lost authority in the garden and somehow he's regained it with the ministry of Jesus and it's progressively growing. Like, none of, that, none of that makes any sense to me. It's just like, what? No, he's always ruled completely sovereign from the beginning. And Jesus, right now at the right hand of God, is completely sovereign. Like God has always been. But the question is, what is he doing with that sovereignty? And so Jesus is doing the same thing now at the right hand of God, that God has been doing since Genesis 3, which is ruling sovereignly, patiently, extending mercy, waiting, patiently, interceding, and now the Messiah, who's going to execute judgment on his behalf, is likewise with the Father at the right hand, patiently waiting, interceding. So Ephesians 1 and 2 is a great example of that, if you want to flip over to Ephesians. Uh, 
so Paul prays that they would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation, having the eyes of their hearts enlightened, that you may know the hope to which he's, in, which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, like Psalm 2, when the Messiah is given the new heavens and new earth and the nations, and he executes judgment from Zion. And so that you may know the, the inheritance of the saints and the power towards us, That God worked in raising Jesus from the dead. So we're also, he's going to raise us from the dead for eternal life. So again, it's traditional Jewish categories in Acts 1. And he seated him at his right hand, Psalm 110, in the heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, power, dominion, above every name that's named, not only in this age, but the age to come. So Paul isn't collapsing the two ages into one. He's highlighting the two ages. That presently at the right hand, Psalm 110, he's waiting to make his enemies his footstool. And the age to come is when he makes his enemies his footstool, Psalm 110, verse 5, the day of wrath when he heats up the kings of the earth. Does that make sense? And so that leads into chapter 2. But you were dead in your trespasses, walking according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. So this is traditional Jewish explanation of this present evil age. Right? So he's saying, you were likewise destined for wrath in the present evil age. He says, you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy like he is in this age because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you're saved from the wrath to come and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So you have a metaphorical reference to us being uh, uh, in relationship with Jesus at the right hand of God, being raised up relationally as he sits at the right hand of God. Now, if Paul viewed that that what the Messiah is doing at the right hand of God has radically changed everything and changed the narrative, then he would say... Like is commonly said, you're seated with Christ in heavenly places, and now you're taking over the world and extending the rod of God to the infidel. Da 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 da. Right? I mean, that's the logical. Nobody says it that bluntly. I'm just saying it bluntly, so we all know what we're talking about, right? But no, his conclusion is right after that, raised up with heavenly places, so that in the coming ages, so that in the coming ages. He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So what is Jesus doing at the right hand of God? He's waiting patiently, extending kindness and mercy. And we've been raised up with him as he's been given all authority in this age. And we extend kindness and mercy, seeking the repentance of all. So that in the coming ages, when there's no longer in the age to come, when there's no longer mercy towards the wrath against the children of men, that he's glorified for his mercy. And so then he goes straight, for by grace you've been saved through faith, saved from the wrath to come. So like that passage fits within a Jewish apocalyptic expectation of divine mercy in this age, expressed in the death of the Messiah for our sins, and Jewish apocalyptic in the age to come when that window's closed. Does that make sense? Hopefully that's helpful and not... But what, what ends up happening the same way is you get like one little verse picked out. We've been raised up with Christ and we sit in heavenly places to change the whole narrative. 
Meaning that now the church has been given authority to take over the seven spheres and the seven mountains and crush the governments. And it's like, no, we're raised up with Christ because Christ and God have ruled over everything from all eternity with all power and authority. And he's nice and merciful. And that's what God's doing now. And we need to do that. Like we need to be nice and compassionate and forgiving like God because the day of God has not come. That doesn't mean judgment isn't coming. Judgment is coming. That's the point. Flee the wrath to come and love people now, etc. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I think that's good. Um, I want to do something. We have so many saints here, so we need to pray. So um, we're going to have a five-minute prayer meeting, okay? I have a timer, five minutes. We'll be done. So uh, what I want you to do is... Not very spiritual at all. I'm not spiritual. That's the whole game here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, the Lord so, can multiply yeah, like right. bread and fish. Yeah. So get in groups of two or three. Four is too many. It takes too long. Two or three. Um, and you can pray for, you know, if you have a prayer need, pray for specific stuff. Um, but then every person, let's pray for um, just to, that we would tremble before the day of the Lord that, that, that's coming, that we would live um, in light of this, that uh, Jesus returning would drive disciples. From, um, from this morning, okay? So let's stand, groups two and three, um, and, and let's pray. And uh, before we do that, John, thank you yeah. so much for coming. Um, hope you were blessed. We, we for sure were. Bless you guys.